This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Monday, February 5th. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith is here in Ottawa defending her controversial gender identity policy. Coming up, my one-on-one interview with Premier Daniel Smith. And London police speak for the first time since laying charges against five former members of the 2018 World Junior Hockey Team. Hear their apology to the victim, plus we'll speak to Sport Minister Carla Qualtro about efforts to clean up Canada's national sport. We begin with the Alberta Premier's visit to Ottawa. Daniel Smith is here to open a new provincial office as she battles the federal government on multiple issues. Her gender identity policy could be the newest front in that fight. What she has proposed to ban young LGBTQ2 kids from being who they are puts lives at risk. And the decision to come out to one's family does not belong to a teacher, a school. It definitely does not belong to a premier. That is a person's decision alone. I hope we don't get to a court challenge, but we're going to look at every single option. And it's really important that Albertans and Canadians lean in and say, this is not the Canada of today. Danielle Smith is, of course, the Premier of Alberta, and she joins me now here in Ottawa. Premier, welcome to the show. It's good to have you back yeah, in the studio pleasure. this time. I, I, I want to start with the gender policy you rolled out uh, late last week. The pediatric section of the Alberta Medical Association released a statement on this policy warning that transgender youth already have higher rates of mental health issues and thoughts of suicide because of stigma. And they warned this policy will increase that stigma and make these mental health problems worse. I, I wonder why are you pushing medical policies that medical experts warn will harm these kids? Well, I, I guess I have to, to think of the, the patients and the children. That's who I have in mind. And w- one of the things that was I was struck by was a, a woman named Lois Cardinal, who um, sued our government, actually. She she wanted medical assistance in dying because she felt like she was forced into transitioning faster than she wanted to. She started her process at 19, and by 21, she had already had uh, top and bottom surgery and had nothing but medical problems afterwards. And so I felt, you know, if a 19-year-old feels like they're being pressured into this, when is the right age for a young person to make these decisions? So we want to just make sure that the, there's clear guideposts so that kids are being supported along the way, so that families are involved in the process, and, and that's the reason why we put the package together. I mean, this is a terrible story about Lois Cardinal, but, but is that the basis of the policy? Did you consult with experts on this? Because medical, the medical experts in your province are saying they were not consulted on I, this policy. I can tell you that the, there's a division in the medical community, and we saw that in the UK when they shut down their Tavistock gender identity clinic. And we didn't. We don't want to do that, obviously. We don't want to leave anybody without having continuity of care. But it was uh, similar kinds of concerns about when is the appropriate time for uh, a child to make the decision on puberty blockers? When's the appropriate time for a child to make a decision on uh, cross-sex hormones and surgery? And so uh, we're watching what's happening in the UK and Denmark and uh, the Netherlands, Sweden, Finland, Norway, they're all making these kinds of, of really difficult decisions and having these really important public discussions, and we think it's time that we did too. But, but I, I guess, which experts did you consult? Did you just read what other countries are doing? Like, who wrote this policy and in consultation with whom? There's been a lot of consultation, and we've been watching the trends around the world. We've been watching what's happening in the rest of the country. We've been listening to parents. Parents are the ones who are most concerned. They want to know what's going on with their kids. And I think, unfortunately, what we're seeing is that that increasingly there are policies being proposed that would d- that would uh, divide families. And we want to make sure that families uh, are, stay together because 
quite frankly, these kids are at risk and they need to have a loving, supportive family around them. They need to have loving, supportive adults around them. And you don't get to that if you if you cut the family out of these important discussions. I, I understand that, but but uh, is, you want you don't want to cut experts out of important policy decisions either, right? So I, I'm just wondering, which experts did you consult with? Who sat down with you as you were drafting these regulations? I mean, the, clearly a lot of work went into the communications of it with the video, but it's unclear to me who you consulted with. As I, as I said, we're, we're watching what is happening around the world, and there is a, a robust discussion about at what point do these decisions get made. And so we've started the conversation. We're going to continue it. The policy is going to be drafted and legislation in the fall, so there's lots of opportunity to continue having input. But we thought it was important with some of the early concerns that we've been hearing from parents that we, we make it pretty clear that there's going to be some guidelines around so is it driven mostly by that, concerns by parents rather than medical advice and, and academic well, advice? Well, as I said, the, the medical community is divided on this. There's different uh, advice given by different medical associations, and there's uh, different approaches. And we have to, to make sure that we are using the best evidence. And unfortunately, there isn't long-term evidence about what happens to these kids after transition. There isn't long-term evidence about the impact of having cross-sex hormones as well as on the uh, the puberty blockers. And so we, we want to take a cautious approach. We don't want young people to make decisions that are going to be irreversible. We think those are adult decisions. The, 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 well, the puberty blockers and the hormones can stop taking the medicine and, and things go back to the normal path. Surgery, of course, would be irreversible. Bottom surgery is not legal for anyone under the age of 18. Only top surgery is. According to the data we've seen nationally, only 985 people had top gender reassignment surgery in, in 2023 uh, out of a population of, of 40 million people. It was only 22 people under the age of 18 in Alberta in 2023. How many kids are, are, are you trying to manage with this process? It seems like it's a small enough number. It could be dealt with case by case with a medical practitioner rather than requiring big government intervention. We, we believe that kids should not be going down a path where they're going to make irreversible decisions about their reproductive health until they're of an age and a maturity level where they're able to deal with the consequences of that. Mo most uh, practitioners will say that age is about 16. That's why we're going to make sure that kids have access to, uh, to cross-sex hormones uh, as early as 16 with the input of their parents, a psychologist and a doctor, and then surgery not until age 18. Uh, but these are, these are really difficult conversations to have, um, and we just don't want any uh, young children to, to feel like they've made a decision that is, uh, that is going to, to impact their ability to have children in the future prematurely. I think they need to have a maturity level to be able to make those decisions. You've talked about parental rights in this, and, and mm -hmm. on the medical side of it, parental decision-making is largely removed, and government decision-making is substituted for that, right? So how does that square with your advocacy of parental rights? And, and again, how many children in Alberta are asking for this surgery? Like how big of a population are you trying to manage with this policy? L look, sometimes government has to step in. Um, when you look at the opioid crisis that we have right now, a lot of that was overprescription by mm -hmm. medical doctors of dangerous opo opioids, thinking that they were safe. They turned out not to be safe. And so sometimes we have to take that extra level of diligence to make sure that we're getting evidence-based research about the long-term impact. And unfortunately, we, uh, we just don't have that, that evidence-based research yet. And so we want to take a cautious approach to support the kids who are currently going through transition, make sure they feel supported, their families are involved, and that they have a pathway to be able to become who they want to be. The federal government says you're demonizing trans kids. Your critics in Alberta say this could cost kids lives. And we've seen some 
political analysis in Alberta that this is all because of Take Back Alberta, uh, mm. which has taken over a lot of your rural riding associations or gotten elected en masse in a lot of your rural riding associations. What do you say to these claims? Well, I think it's disappointing that the, the media hasn't covered what is happening around the world and why it is the Tavistock Clinic got closed. In fact, Thunder Bay, they've actually closed another clinic that is going to leave kids without care. We're not doing that. We're taking an approach that we want to have continuity of care. We understand that it's important. But these decisions are made very quickly as well. And you, you can't cut families out of them. Because when a, a child is confirmed and wants to make this, this, uh, this pathway forward, it is very quick to move along the process. And they need to feel supported. So we want to make sure that no decisions are made before a child has the maturity level to deal with the consequences. And that's why we put the, the policy in place. You're now the third premier, though, to, to come out with a big policy on this. And it affects such a small group of people. Why is such a small group of people across the country and even smaller, you know, in Alberta as a subset of this group of people being given so much political focus in terms of their life decision uh, making process instead of leaving it to them, their family and their doctor? Well, I, I can tell you there's a New York Times article that suggests as many as 10 percent of kids who transition um, regret it and want it reversed. There's 20 percent who don't continue on. So a 30 percent uh, number of people who make a decision to go down this path of irreversible changes and having regret later, that's a, that's a very high number of, uh, of failure. And so I'm looking at those individuals. I want them to make sure that when they make a decision, they understand the full consequences and they're prepared to deal with it. We don't want any regret, not on, not on these important decisions. So it doesn't matter how small that number is. I would like the number of kids who are expressing regret because they transitioned too early, didn't know the consequences, and gave up the, the chance of having, a, having children. I want that number to be zero. And the way you do that is you make sure that you have more diligence in the process. On the other side of the ledger, though, are people who have gone through this journey and said if this, these op options weren't available to them at a young age, self-harm was prevalent, suicide was a possibility, the stigma and the depression and the mental health toll of not being able to get puberty blockers, hormone therapy, would have been catastrophic for them. How do you balance it on the other side, Premier, if they can't get the care that they say they and need? And that's why we are making the care available at uh, 16 years of age for those who have the maturity level to be able to, to make those decisions and it's deal with the Post-puberty, though, right? You know, and for kids with gender dysphoria, that, that's too late, a lot of them say. Uh, well, as I say, they, they've done a pretty thorough research at Tavistock and made the decision that there needs to be more evidence-based approaches when we're talking about these kinds of interventions. And so we're, we're going to continue to make sure sure that the kids who are in the middle of the of transition are supported, their families are involved, and that there's a clear pathway for them to be able to get the care they need. Because that's the other thing that I learned from Lois's story is we don't do great aftercare. In Alberta, we have patients having to go to to Quebec to get their surgery. And then when there's complications, there isn't good aftercare to be able to make sure that they're taken care of. The, those who do transition need lifelong treatment of hormones. We have to make sure those doctors are available. So there, that's the other aspect of it, is we want to make sure that there is a supportive environment for both the psychological support as well as, as good basic medical support for those who do this transition and need to be supported into adulthood. A, a final question on this policy. Uh, this seems headed for a court challenge, if you believe what mm -hmm. Egal and Skipping Stone and, and other people who work in the trans and, and queer rights advocacy space um, have said, will you use the notwithstanding clause uh, 
to, to get this through and to well, protect it? I can tell you there, there already is case law and jurisprudence around the issue of mature minors. Those are the kind of decisions that, that courts will make. There are very a sort of rare number of kids who are deemed at younger ages to be able to make those kinds of life-changing decisions, but I don't want to prejudge what the courts will decide. And if that's um, if there are certain uh, cases that go forward, I, I guess we'll, we'll watch the jurisprudence and see what happens. Scott Lowe, though, has, has, has used it or threatened to use it in, in Saskatchewan. Is, is that something you're ruling out or not taking off the table? Well, look, I, I'm hoping that because of the way we frame this, that we're, we're protecting the kids' rights to be able to, to make long-term decisions and, and bear the consequences of it. And we're wanting to make sure that there's a, an assessment of maturity in making, in making those decisions. So I'm, I'm hopeful that people see that this is going to be supportive. We want to give a pathway to those who want to transition to become who they want to be. We're going to turn now to some breaking news as Buckingham Palace announced today that King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer. The palace says it is not prostate cancer, but it was discovered during the king's recent treatment for an enlarged prostate. For more on this story, the CBC's Abby Kuitasen is in London. So, Abby, what do we know about the king's health? Well, we know what Buckingham Palace is telling us. This statement says essentially that King Charles has cancer. They have made it clear it is not prostate cancer, though, but confirmed the diagnosis was made during his treatment for an enlarged prostate just recently. They didn't confirm the type of cancer he has now. Now, the palace says the monarch started his treatment as an outpatient on Monday in London, just one day after he was last seen in Sandringham attending a church service with his wife, Queen Consort. Camilla. Now, the statement also says the king will postpone all of his public engagements following advice from his doctors. And some royal commentators believe that senior members of the family may step in for the king, including his wife and his son, the Prince of Wales, on some occasions. Uh, but the palace also made it quite clear that the king will continue carrying out his constitutional duty. This should include, for example, his weekly private meeting with the British Prime Minister. Uh, now, as we know, this is the second major health announcement linked to King Charles in recent weeks. In mid-January, uh, the palace said he was about to get treated, treatment uh, for an enlarged prostate. And today, this news that he has cancer. And certainly, royal watchers have said how surprised they are to hear the palace speaking so transparently about the monarch's health, given the late Queen's palace team seldom did. She felt it was a private manner, a matter, rather, and the new mar- monarch um, certainly doesn't appear to be following in his mother's footsteps here. It's certainly a significant piece of news to hear something like this. What reaction are you seeing to this happen? Well, the Prime Minister has posted on social media, Justin Trudeau writing, I, like Canadians across the country and people around the world, am thinking of His Majesty King Charles. We're sending him our very best wishes. Our Governor General also reacting. Mary Simon's statement uh, reads, My husband and I will join with all Canadians in sending our best wishes to His Majesty the King as he begins cancer treatment. We admire the king's strength and determination as he confronts this disease. We've also seen the U.S. President Joe Biden be asked about this news during a trip to Las Vegas. He says he's very concerned and plans to call the king. There has been reaction too here in the United Kingdom, of course. The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, says, I have no doubt he'll be back to full strength in no time. Now, certainly before this diagnosis was made public today, it was shared with the royal family. A palace 
spokesperson says that the king told his siblings, as well as his two sons himself. Uh, we know, of course, the relationship with Prince Harry hasn't been on solid ground for quite some time, with the Duke of Sussex stepping back from royal life and moving to the United States with his family back in 2020. Harry was invited to the coronation back in May, but left for Los Angeles almost as soon as it ended. Uh, and it is worth mentioning now, a source close to him telling CBC News tonight that Prince Harry will travel to the United Kingdom to see his father in the coming days. Okay, Abby, thank you so much to CBC's Abby Kuatasen in London. The government of Alberta has opened a new provincial office here in Ottawa. Premier Danielle Smith announced the opening today, flanked by several Alberta ministers. She said it will be another tool to help manage the province's relationship with the federal government. This, as Alberta is gearing up for yet another court battle with the federal government over a proposed oil and gas emissions cap. We spoke to Alberta Premier Danielle Smith earlier today. Here's the second part of our conversation, focusing on her legal fights with Ottawa over energy and climate. Are you prepared to litigate again with the federal government on environmental policy? Yes, and I think we have about a dozen actions against the federal government. It's because they keep losing. Uh, they passed the Impact Assessment Act, they lost at the Supreme Court, and they've ignored it. They uh, lost on the plastics um, um, declaration of it being toxic on the grounds that it's overreaching, and it's also unconstitutional. They even lost on the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So we've got a, a government that's acting in a lawless way. They, they constantly pass policies that are outside their area of jurisdiction, and then they force us to go to court to be able to get our rights back. So that's what we're going to do. If they continue to act in this way, then we'll continue to defend our jurisdiction. Well, they are going to respond to the uh to the case on, on the assessment agency. They are going to table amendments to the legislation. So they haven't quite ignored it. It's just we need to see exactly what their solution is going to be to that. But how do you manage this relationship with the federal government if on all their core things you are pushing back from Alberta and on issues like the, the gender policy we were just talking about, they are out criticizing you and attacking your government as, as harming kids. How do you find a way forward where Alberta and Canada can work on things in terms of the national government? Well, with respect, they are ignoring it because even though they had the ruling against them, they have announced an emissions cap on oil and gas. They've announced a methane cap on oil and gas. They've announced interference in our power grid with a net zero plan for, for power generation. They've announced uh, zero emissions vehicles on an aggressive timeline as well, in violation, I think, of uh, property and civil rights, which is also a provincial area of jurisdiction. So I don't think that they learned the lesson of the court. I think they're trying to find a way to preserve their legislation, regardless of what the court has told them to do. And that's why we've got to continue fighting them. Where we can agree is on the issue of developing out a hydrogen economy. We've already purchased three hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. We've got, ten, uh, we've got 100 in our province. We've got a net zero hydrogen production plant in the works called Air Products. They're going to be building out hydrogen infrastructure. We're in a partnership with the federal government on dual fuel vehicles for long haul transport, uh, biodiesel as well as hydrogen. We're going to continue working on that. We've got companies that want to experiment with net zero homes using hydrogen as a, a fuel source. We have an agreement uh, that we're working on with other provinces on small modular nuclear reactors. Capital Power announced that they want to work in partnership with OPG to roll that out. We have an economic corridor with Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Hopefully we'll be able to have interties that will be built so that we can bring in either nuclear or, or hydroelectric power. Same thing with British Columbia. So those are really positive things. And carbon capture utilization and storage. I mean, part of the reason we got to the finish line with the federal government and Dow Chemical, which is going to be a $12 billion uh, net zero petrochemical investment, is because we 
we were able to work collaboratively. So I think those are examples of ways that we can work together, which is why I don't understand why it is the Environment Minister, Stephen Guibault, continues to act in such a, um, a, a, an un such an such a such a an unconstitutional and illegal way. Well, because he's got the backing of the prime minister. I mean, Stephen Gobeau is not doing this on his own. I know your relationship with the minister ain't great, and you know you've called him a menace and, and called for him to be fired. But it, it's bigger than Stephen Gobeau, isn't it? From your perspective, I mean, this is the federal government under Prime Minister Trudeau that is pursuing these policies. Strangely, though, we're able to work with Francois Philippe Champagne. And he's worked collaboratively with us on air products and Dow Petrochemical and Heidelberg, which will be a net zero cement plant. Uh, we've been able to, to work with Jonathan Wilkinson, who also, I think, shares our, our desire to build out a, a hydrogen economy. Uh, we've worked with, uh, with Christian Freeland, who got the Trans Mountain Pipeline nearly to the finish line, as well as the Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage Tax Credit. So I would say different ministers have different relationships with our province. And it's only Stephen Gibeau that's uniformly bad. Okay, I want to ask you one last question. You took a bit of heat for your appearance with Tucker Carlson. Mm. And I know you said, you know, uh, and that you'll do interviews with people you don't agree with and you reference the, C- you, you you the CBC. And look, <laughs> and, and, look, and we appreciate your, your availability and willingness to take our questions. Tucker Carlson's in Moscow now. He's going to sit down with Vladimir Putin in, in what a lot of people see as a propaganda win for, for, the, for the man behind the invasion of Ukraine. Do you have any regrets based on what, what Mr. Carlson has done since he sat down with you? Look, um, I, I don't agree 100% with every person that I talk to. My, my goal is to get the Alberta story out. And the Alberta story is that we are here to help. We should be the, the very first supplier of secure, affordable energy to the United States. As they continue to see their reservoirs depleted, I want them to look to Alberta as their partner, not Venezuela, not Iran. And so that was the message that I wanted to get out. That's why I said that we should uh, double our production of oil and natural gas, because I think America's going to need it, and I think our international trading partners are going to need it. And that's what I use these opportunities for, is to make sure people know everything that Alberta wants to do. So him giving a platform to Vladimir Putin doesn't change your, your view on, on, on him as someone you would you'd speak with in the future? I will, I will talk to anybody who will allow me to get my, our Alberta story out. It's a good story to tell. Premier Daniel Smith, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Police in London, Ontario spoke today for the first time about sexual assault charges laid against five former members of Canada's 2018 World Junior Hockey Team. Police also apologized to the woman who first raised those allegations nearly six years ago. I want to extend on behalf of the London Police Service my sincerest apology to the victim, to her family, for the amount of time that it has taken to reach this point. The original investigation in this case ended without charges in 2019, but it was reopened in 2022. And these are the players now charged. Dylan Dubain of the Calgary uh, Flames, Cal Foote and Michael McLeod, both of the New Jersey Devils, Carter Hart of the Philadelphia Flyers, and former NHL player Alex Formanton. Their lawyers attended a brief court hearing this morning, and the next court date is April 30th. Watching this, of course, is Carla Qualtro, the Minister of Sport and Physical Activity, and she joins me now. Minister, thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Uh, look, the, these men are innocent until proven guilty. We're not going to talk about the specifics of the case because we haven't seen the evidence, and we're going to let that play out. But I wonder what do you make of what we saw from the Chief of Police in London today, the apology to the woman at the heart of this six years later? Well, first of all, I want to also acknowledge the courage um, and strength of the victim in this case for 
persevering um, despite a whole bunch of systems seemingly working against her. And I think you heard from the chief of police an acknowledgement of how hard it must have been for her over these past years without any kind of resolution to this. And there hasn't been resolution, but at least we've moved forward right. with the process. Um, and I think that's what we heard in this apology. There were a lot of questions today about why it's di this investigation has led to a different outcome than the yeah. last one. And I appreciate where this is a criminal case going to court. There's ver limits in the specific yeah. answers they can give. But at some point, doesn't the public owe a clear, isn't the public owed and certainly the victim owed a clear explanation as to why? Well, and I expect that we should get that, absolutely, once this process plays through. And I, I read into what the chief of police said, that, that, that he recognized that that information is owed to Canadians and to the victim in particular, um, but that it wasn't, it, it couldn't be given right now, but it would be given mm -hmm. at a future, and I'm going to keep my eye on that one for sure. What do you think that does to public confidence, though? You know, it's, it's always tough in these yeah. cases for, for, for women in particular to yeah. come forward. Um, what does this process do to that? Well, on the one hand, we can say that it really sends an ongoing strong message that um, the system wasn't built with victims' needs in mind. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, um, it does send a message that, that eventually we'll get there and we need to get there a lot quicker in the future. What we were told by, by the police is that um, the victim provided a statement to the police within days yep. of, of the incident at the center of this and has fully participated in the investigation since then and yet... This is the process. Uh, we're just getting to the charges now, despite these are often the obstacles people point to in sex crimes, right? right? The lack right. of uh, early, re timely reporting yeah. and cooperation. Well, and is they this just, a failure for the woman? The system definitely let her down, for sure. Um, a whole bunch of systems let her down, which is, you know, why we are dealing in Canada with a reckoning, with a crisis within our sports system when it comes to safe sport. Um, Absolutely. This happened at the World Juniors, yeah. or allegedly, uh, the, the allegations is that this was around members of the World Junior team. Uh, but the NHL did an investigation because four of the five uh, play uh, in the NHL, and those details were never released. Yeah. And Commissioner Gary Bettman hasn't committed to releasing any of the details even after the police investigation closes. What do you think of the NHL's response here and, and hockey in general? Well, I, I think it's unfortunate that the NHL didn't take the opportunity to send a clear message that this kind of behavior wouldn't be tolerated within their system. I completely understand that they don't want to interfere in any way with an ongoing investigation, but missed opportunity for sure. A little disappointment on my part that they didn't say this kind of behavior is unacceptable, that we do have um, some hard work to do in hockey in Canada, but of course throughout all these hockey systems to make it more safe and fair and inclusive and welcoming. So uh, on that, you've said there's a safe sport crisis yeah. uh, in Canada. Uh, Bettman yep. said it's inaccurate and unfair to say there are systemic culture issues in hockey. He said 99.9% .9 of players conduct themselves appropriately. What's your response to what the commissioner had to say about hockey? I disagree. I think that, you know, we have seen time and time again come to light through two parliamentary committees, through um, victims coming forward, survivors' testimony, advocacy groups. There's clearly a culture of toxic masculinity, misogyny, um, racism. There's bad things happening in hockey in this country and elsewhere, I suspect, but let's focus on Canada, which doesn't mean that there aren't great things also happening in sport in this country every day. Um, but that doesn't excuse the fact that there are bad things happening as well. We don't know where this criminal case is going to go, yep. um, uh, but we do know the concerns about the process and, and yep. what have been described failures that led to here. Can some good come out of this? Do you think other police forces can learn from the situation in London? Um, you know, do you think other 
victims uh, might gain comfort from the fact that it led to charges. Is there a positive that can come out of something that's been in Yeah, I hope so. Um, Certainly, that's what I think we can make sure we highlight is reassuring victims that that we will be there for them, that the system will ultimately... um, be there. We don't know what the outcome will be, as, as you mm-hmm. said, but I think the point is that we all need to look at our systems and we need to do better because we haven't done enough. Uh, on another topic, uh, we, we spoke to Alberta Premier Daniel Smith earlier in the show, and uh, your government is very critical of the gender policy she outlined uh, last week. Uh, aside from the education and, and the health components of that, there is a sport component to that, uh, to, to restrict trans athletes from, from playing in the sport of the gender they transition to, but the talk about setting up co-ed divisions. What's your thought on that, and is something like that practical in its ability to be set up? Well, first of all, David, I have some very strong opinions on this as a human rights lawyer. Um, I think trans rights are human rights. I think that um, any trans guidelines that are put in place in any sport have to be rights-respecting, have to be based in evidence, and have to be sport-specific, and nothing that the government of Alberta has said around sport leads me to think that that's what would happen. Right? You can't make a blanket exclusion of a whole group of people, people who historically have been marginalized and targeted by discriminatory practices and policies um, without digging in. There's, there's, there's complexity to this, for sure. And categorization, absolutely a part of sport, but not a license to discriminate, which I think this does. So how do you approach it? Because, for example, the Olympics, I, I, yep. as I understand, they have very clear you know, designations on who's a man and who's a woman and who can compete in in, in a particular sport. How do you manage this at at an amateur student level and and even at the elite level? Yeah, so I think there's two different issues there. There's the sport participation side of this. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about young kids who are playing sport where we want to make sure everybody's welcome and included and everybody finds themselves a place in the sport system. And then there's high-performance sport, which in Canada and around the world has a layer of domestic rules and a layer of international regs and rules, and that's where the Olympics or or an international federation. You might have a sport organization in Canada that has one approach to trans inclusion, but their governing international federation has a different approach, and that makes it super complicated. But as I said, you know, all the reading I've done, all the all the evidence that I've seen is it has to be sport-specific. So can you provide the safety um, through other types of categorization, weight classes, age classes, um, uh, respecting people's rights? How can you minimally impair somebody's rights? You know, will it be a different approach to a sport that is... um, uh, a swimming than a weightlifting. Like, you right. just can't blanket exclude people. Right. So, so I mean, you see the examples out there or the, uh, that someone got, you know, transitions and they suddenly are on a university team taking up a space or getting yeah. a scholarship. Like, th- there's scarcity creates conflict. So yeah. how do you navigate this with, how do you balance all of those yeah, things going carefully, forward? I would yeah. say. And just because it's complicated doesn't mean we don't have an obligation to people to figure it out. I mean, we put in, our government put into the Human Rights Code that you can't discriminate against somebody based on gender identity or de- gender expression. So let's start there. Let's start with the fact that people have a right to be included and figure out um, how we do that with, you know, with respect to the integrity of the game and integrity of the categorization. I think it can be done. Um, I don't think we've figured it all out yet, but I think it can be done. How quickly? I mean, it feels like it needs to be figured out in some way because, you know, it's increasingly becoming, you know, people either say this is about protecting, you know, uh, cisgendered people or it's about protecting parents' rights. 
or others say it's about protecting, you know, uh, a minority right. Yeah. So, so, you know, what's the, how quickly does a country like Canada need to figure this well, out in terms of... There concerns? are some guidance, there is some guidance through the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport that says, um, mm. again, for someone who's trans, if they've transitioned and have, have been um, in, in, have been transitioned for a certain amount of time, then they should be able to participate when their testosterone is below a certain level. It's all very technical. Different right. countries have different levels of testosterone that you have to be under. Um, there's no standard approach to this. I think one of the reasons that I want to strike an international work group on integrity in sport is to have these conversations with, with countries around the world. Um, but I cannot accept that the starting position is exclusion or discrimination. I just can't accept that. Yeah, that, that level of, of, of uh, regulation, though, yeah. that you outlined, yeah. you can't do that in high school. You can't yeah. do that in K-12, right? right. So, so how, do you, how, do you, how do you as a, a country balance it there? Well, I think that's why we make a differentiation between sport participation, where the goals would be more inclusion, more um, fairness from a not leaving people out point of view than a high-performance, competitive, elite sport um, context where there might need to be more rigor to the actual regulatory side of this. But again, as a starting point, every single kid deserves to have a welcoming, inclusive experience in sport in this country. Full stop. And we got to figure that out for them. Carla Coltrow, Minister of Sport. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's time for Justin Trudeau to stop, stop distracting and dividing Canadians. Let parents raise kids and provinces run schools and hospitals. This is right-wing American-style politics, culture wars that they're trying to import from the United States. Conservatives are being cowardly and not sticking up for Canadian children. This is a jurisdiction of Alberta. I believe that the whole ordeal is becoming quite partisan and it's not wise. Okay, that was some of the federal political reaction to Alberta's new youth gender policies. Conservatives say the Liberals are using the policies to divide Canadians, but Liberals say the Conservatives are importing U.S.-style culture wars, and the Bloc Québécois says no one should be using vulnerable kids for partisan ends. The Power Panel is back with me on this. Brad Levine is a former communications director for the NDP. Here with me in Ottawa, Vandana Cotter is a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Gary Keller is a former chief of staff to Conservative cabinet ministers. And Rob Russo is my old boss. He's the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief. Nobody was his <laughs> oh, people would disagree. All right, uh, Brad, I want to start with you. What did you make of Mr. Polyev's answer that this jurisdictionally, he seems to suggest, is, is, is uh, not for him to deal with as a potential prime minister, yet his party uh, last September passed policy on this, or at least a policy resolution on this, and it's a question of minority rights in a lot of people's view. Does jurisdiction work as a shield in a situation no. like that? No, not at all. Uh, it's, 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 if you listen to that one clip, it's just enough to, to think, is he responding to this policy issue? Because it's being vague. Nobody's suggesting that the federal government take over schools, and nobody's suggesting that parents shouldn't, shouldn't uh, raise children. Um, but it's just that, just that enough. If you, if you, if you, you know, parse through his words carefully, he's just sending the signal that without coming out on one side of the issue, you kind of get a sense as to where he stands. He's, he's obviously with Smith. The Conservative Party has stuck its nose in a minority rights at the federal level that are, that are, that are either uh, at the local or, or uh, provincial level uh, in the past before. The NECAB, which we've already mentioned, uh, while it was uh, uh, ceremonies at uh, citizenship, which is what uh, um, uh, Jason Kenney was doing at the time of the 2015 election, clearly they have no problem doing it when it suits their purposes. But here he's being just vague enough 
uh, to suggest he's signaling to uh, just that cohort that he's trying to speak to uh, where he stands without coming out and saying, I agree with Daniel Smith and the UCP government on this file. Gary, what do you make of that, that answer there from Pierre Polyev and, and the reporting we saw from Marika Walsh in The Globe, I believe it was Friday, that they basically sent out a memo to the MP saying, we recommend, and recommend, Gary is doing a lot of work there, that you don't weigh in on this. Why, why take this approach for this long? Well, I think it's funny because a month ago the Prime Minister's office was saying out, saying that uh, uh, Pierre Polyev wasn't uh, uh, controlling enough of his caucus. He should be out there <laughs> controlling his caucus. And now they're saying, he's too controlling. Why don't he, doesn't he let his caucus speak? You know, I, I think it's, it's a, bit, a bit funny in, in that respect. I also think that when it comes to uh, the Liberal Party, you know, they're, they're, I think the Liberal Party is the party that really wants this as a culture war. We saw David McNaughton, the former uh, American Canadian ambassador to the United States, Justin Trudeau's first diplomatic appointment, say, stop this culture war talk. Stop this mega Trump fixation you have because it's going to lead to problems down the road. No matter who wins, it's, it's, a, it's a problem for it. And, you know, when it comes to the Liberal Party, who are, they've sent every minister out there trying to, to, to wedge on this issue, you know, it was, uh, I, I think about uh, Lawrence McCauley, you know, he voted against same-sex marriage in 2005, he ran an explicitly pro-life platform in 2015. You know, if J Justin Trudeau and Randy Boyle also want to have a conversation. Maybe they should have a conversation within, within the caucus room, in the cabinet room. Okay, but the, the Liberals have implemented positions on that. Now, you have to be pro-life, or sorry, pro-choice. You have to be pro-equal uh, marriage to, to run for them. But, but the, you know, and Mr. Polyev, who talks about his father... Mr. McCauley, Mr. McCauley, in 2015, Prime Minister's office said, no, no, right. you have to follow the, the party line. He's sitting at the cabinet table. Right, okay. But, but my question was about why do you think Mr. Polyev is, is, is not giving a clear answer on this, using jur jurisdiction as the answer? What is the calculus there for the Conservatives? Because the Liberal Party is clearly trying to bait the Conservative Party into taking a, uh, a, a position on this, get out there and try to uh, drive a wedge into the Conservative Party. Mr. Polly is saying, I'm not having any of that. We're not going there. This is an issue between the federal Liberals and a provincial government. We're just not going there. Okay. Vandana, what do you think? I don't think that's right. <laughs> but I think, um, and for Mr. McCauley, I would tell you that he will tell you that how he's evolved on this topic and a different understanding of these different generation. And remember that time in 2015 and how he's evolved. And a lot of our members have evolved on that just as they've learned and, and grown in that regard. Um, I think, actually, Pierre Polyev wants this to be an issue for the Prime Minister because he doesn't want the PM doing exactly what he's doing right now, talking about affordability, talking about housing, making housing announcements, uh, doing the national auto thefts like roundtable and whatnot and addressing the issues that Canadians want him to address. Um, Justin Trudeau doesn't bring this up. Daniel Smith did. Mm -hmm. Daniel Smith did. So, and that response that Pierre Polyev's talking about was to media. So if media is asking a question, you know, if you want the job as prime minister, you have to be accountable. It means you have to answer the question. It doesn't mean you can take your ball and go home and say, I don't want to respond to it. And what he's doing at the end where he's talking about, you know, this is Justin Trudeau, it's him trying to drive that narrative. Justin Trudeau is trying to control you. It's misinformation, right? No one's saying that the prime minister, as Rob said, or as Brad said, is, you know, trying to get involved in education. But this is something on, on minority rights is something that the federal government can make a comment on and talk about, especially when it can cause harm to young people. Okay, I, I want to play a clip uh, just uh, to get some reaction because one of the other very prominent conservatives in Canada was asked about this today. That is Ontario Premier Doug Ford. He was asked if they were going to make any changes in Ontario in the wake of New Brunswick and Saskatchewan and, and Alberta. Here's what Premier Doug Ford had to say on this today. I wonder if you would comment about um, recent announcement from the Premier of Alberta. Are you considering any similar action that she's taken with regard to restricting no. surgeries or hormone treatments for trans youth? 
No, we're, we we have a law here, and we're we're leaving everything alone. So, Rob, uh, you know, pretty short, simple, clear answer there from yeah. Doug Ford. So it's possible. If, if you couldn't see his lower body there, but if if they did pan down, it would show him tiptoeing around a nuclear device. Uh, he clearly didn't want to have anything to do with this. And I also, but they're also not touching it. They're not no, taking it on, right? Exactly. Uh, so they don't see any advantage in it for them. I also believe, given Marika Walsh's reporting, and she's an excellent reporter, and, and given the brevity of Mr. Poilievre's response, that this is also something that he knows is not to his advantage. Um, he, he has other priorities that he thinks are winners for them. Conservatives generally do very well on issues of taxation, the economy, crime. They don't do very well on social issues. They defend normally on social issues, particularly at the federal level. He actually did give a clear response in that he said, let parents raise their kids, but he did it as succinctly as possible and wrapped around as much of the other things that he sees uh, as priorities, as much of that as possible as well. So he tried to not sweep it under the carpet, but sweep it away so he could concentrate on other issues where he thinks he can have a better chance of winning. But, you know, Brad, I see uh, Jagmeet Singh take questions on things that he calls a news conference not to talk about. The prime minister does it when he has a news conference uh, to talk about a housing announcement or whatever in, in southwestern Ontario. to deal with a million things uh, because he's uh, in that job. I mean, doesn't a leader have to be able to deal with things that aren't just part of the three or four core messages that they, they want to deal with uh, whenever they speak to the reporters? Well, the honest answer, uh, David, is a, a leader has to do that when they're not leading in the polls. This is a front-runner strategy where you can um, slough off questions uh, as you see fit and not, not take the bait. He has also built, I think, uh, a fairly impressive vehicle to get his message out to his uh, supporters and to his audience outside of the mainstream uh, media that, you know, that we've come to kind of rely on to get our information. He's got other, uh, other platforms to do that. Um, but it, 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 you know, I think it's still telling to the you know to the attentive public when a when a when a leader of a party doesn't want to an answer a particular question. What they do is they create a vacuum in that so that the the audience can then fill in the blank. That is, if he's not mm. answering clearly where he stands on the issue, he allows his opponents to then fill in the blank for him. So, what will you cut, Mr. Polyev? Oh, you know, let's not talk about that. Then we. The opponents in the New Democratic Party and others are allowed to now fill in the blanks for the public. Where do you stand on uh, Daniel Smith's policy? If he doesn't tell us, then we can fill in the blanks on his behalf. So it does come with some risk, but it gets him out of the short-term cycle. But in the long term, there's certainly risk. G Gary, uh, the, the opponents can fill in the blanks, but so can the audience. Right. And we've seen the, the clip there today of let parents raise their kids. Mm -hmm. We've also seen the clip that was captured on a cell phone. I believe it was in Markham where he talked about Justin Trudeau imposing radical gender ideology, two different messages on the same topic to two different audiences in two different fora. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's I, from from what I take away from today's comment, and it was an auto theft. I thought it was interesting that it was an auto theft event where he's trying to preempt the government yes, on this. Yes, uh, very clearly. I, I, yeah, very clearly. Uh, I mean, um, you know, I think I think Mr. Polyev is is listening to that that Angus Reid poll, where I think the vast majority of Canadians uh, he thinks he's on side with them from a, from a voting perspective, very clearly. So, Vandana, let, let's assume, you know, the, the criticism of the Liberals using this as a wedge is, is accurate because they clearly want to talk about this. I mean, it's, they, they, you know, they believe in this issue and they believe it's to their advantage. How do you use it if the other side doesn't engage, if Polyev just shuts down and, and every question about it and doesn't answer it? I mean, does that become your attack? What do you do? It calls into question the kind of leader you want. 
right? If anything, it talks about, you know, when a, a leader needs to be able to speak to difficult topics in a nuanced way, not just to his base. Like, it's an easy answer. You can hide behind a slogan. You can hide behind axe attacks or parental rights and whatnot. It's easy for people to digest. But in the day, um, it helps them define him and say, like, we're, it's a vacuum of leadership. So is this who you want? Is he ready for the job? So, and I actually don't think they're actually using it as a witch. I think, again, this was a gift from Daniel Smith that can be used to show these are the rights that the Liberal Party and the Liberal government does does help, um, you know, perform, uh, move forward. And I think it's about, and I think they're still going to talk about the rights of everyday people. But I think what Pierre Polyev is scared of is that this will help reveal more of what type of leader he will be, right? And that's not going to be palatable for everybody. But, Rob, they have their four core messages, right? Axe attacks, build the homes, fix the budget, and stop the crime. Those are the four things he wants to talk about. That's it every time. And he sees that as a tunnel to 24 Sussex, potentially, if it's renovated in time. So, so the, do, how do you, do you expect him just to continue with that, or can the outside oh, he, world he's intrude? Cer- he's certainly going to try, but I think it's incumbent on, on good journalists to ask pointed, polite, persistent, and professional questions about how he's going to lead Canadians. And it is an example of the kind of question that he's not going to be able to avoid as we get closer and closer to the the time when we we do have to make a a choice as opposed to in a poll. He Mm. will be asked, I hope, pointed, polite, persistent questions in a professional manner about where he's going to take the citizens of this country. And they might not all fall into those four neat categories. Uh, So he should expect that and expect more of it. And we should deliver it as journalists as well. Okay, Gary, just last word uh, to you. I mean, do, do they need a different answer or do you think this is fine? Uh, like from a conservative strategic perspective, do you think it, it's, it's uh, leave it up to parents, leave it up to the provinces is fine? I think the Liberals really want to try to push the issue more and more and try to get somebody in the caucus to take the bait. And Mr. Polly has said very clearly, we're not talking about that. That's not our priority. Our four priorities are the ones you've laid out mm-hmm. and we're going to stick to that messaging come hell or high water. Okay, uh, we're out of time. We're going to leave it there. I'm sure we're going to talk about this again in the future. Thank you to the Power Panel. Rob Russo, Vandana Cutter, Gary Keller, and Brad Levine. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.